0: The chickens are even excited. You hear them over there. Amen. All creation will Love it. Well, once again, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Pillar Church. And uh, what's significant about this particular Sunday? It's Palm Sunday, right? Like Palm Sunday. What's that? This is the the week that leads up to Easter, uh, making. Uh, Jesus rather making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem just a few days before his death on the cross right which makes ne- next Sunday of course Easter um, this morning we're going to we're going to continue in John we're going to discover more about the Savior whose resurrection we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Easter so we're not going to pause necessarily for a, a particular Palm Sunday message but Felt it was significant to really just continue to to uncover more about this Savior that we're going to celebrate his resurrection next week. Hopefully making that celebration all the more powerful and impactful in our lives as we know more about our Lord. Does that sound good? Good, because that's what we're doing. Uh, You guys are, I think I'm just going to chalk it up to you being hot. Maybe some of you are on the verge of passing out because it's so hot and you just can't muster any kind of interaction. That's cool. I'll I'll forgive you this once. If you have a Bible and I hope that you do, open it up to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We looked at the first section last week. We're actually going to continue all the way through the end of the chapter and as you're turning to John chapter 6, and you, your eyes may glance over what we looked at last week and Jesus feeding the 5,000 men that were there, the ten to 12,000 people that were there with the five loaves and two fishes, yes. just keep that sort of on, the, on the, the, the side burner, if you will, as we look at today's text. Um, but let me, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help for this particular message, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So, Lord, again, we pause to give you praise. To give you thanks, to honor you for who you are, for the way in which you love us, for the way in which you provide for us. and You meet every need to include giving us your word, which contains truth, hope, life, encouragement, instruction, Lord, everything that we need. And so I pray as we look at this particular passage this morning, Lord, that we understand uh, with a greater depth the way in which we need you a greater understanding the way in which you love us and an increasing desire and passion for us to share that truth with the world around us. We need your help in that way, Lord, and we pray that you set aside every distraction this morning to put our focus on you, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. Let us text questions. If you have any, what you hear today, Brian and I will come up at the end uh, and attempt to... Respond to those questions. That number is in your digital bulletin at 760-505-0843. Anything you hear, text it. We'd love to come up and ask, or answer those questions, rather. So this particular section of John is sort of a climax moment, and there there are a few of those along the way, but um, Jesus in this instant unconditionally and unashamedly identifies himself as God. It's in this passage where we encounter the first of seven I am statements. How, are you, how many are familiar with the I am statements of Jesus? Couple, couple of you. So this really, I think, is only significant if you consider the, the source of this statement. Now, you have to go way back into the Old Testament. You've got you to gotta consider the interaction between Moses and God back in Exodus. Do you remember the burning bush scene where Moses comes into the presence of the living God. You might be familiar with that. If you're not, I encourage you to go back and read Exodus chapter 3. But it's in the midst of this encounter, Moses asks God. He basically says, God, the people of Israel, they're going to ask me about this encounter. They're going to want to know who you are. And when they ask me, who is the God of their fathers, what should I tell them? What do I say? And God gives a simple answer. I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am sent you. That's how he refers to himself. Again, if you want to go back and read that, check out Exodus chapter 3. We're going to hit a little bit on that when we get there in the text, but I just want to set it up like this is a big moment in John's gospel. So there is a lot happening, needless to say, in these verses. So what I want to do is I want to pull some of the key truths and principles out along the way for us. But if there's an overarching sort of theme, something that's encompassing all of John chapter 6, including what we looked at last week, it's this. Jesus came to be bread, not just to give bread. Jesus came to be bread, not just to give bread. In other words, what we learn from this chapter is that while Jesus absolutely does provide for our physical needs, he's much more concerned with meeting our spiritual needs, So as you keep that principle in mind with me, go forward with me then as we ask a few questions from today's passage. So I'm going to read a couple of sections and then we're going to talk about it and we'll read a few more. But John is basically connecting the entire content of this chapter together. If you were here last week, Mike asked during the Q&A, he asked his own question. Um, Mike, if you're watching, thanks for that. He said, hey, is the idea of manna have anything to do with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Does it tie in at all? Jesus feeding the 5,000. My response to him was that I thought that John was was setting up the rest of the chapter that is going to refer to himself as the bread of life, and he's using this illustration. It wasn't until I started really, really digging and studying out um, that certainly the manna story that that, uh, Mike was asking about from Israel's time in the desert, it's going to help the crowd, it's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying to them. But Jesus also uses it as a way of telling the people what he is not. He uses the idea of manna to tell people what he is not. He is not a temporary solution to the worldly problems we face. What was the manna for? It was food for them to eat in the desert because they were physically hungry. Is that going to satisfy them for all eternity? No, it's not. So he uses that as a way to say Yes, that was good of God. He he provided and met that need, but it's not a long-term solution. That's not what we're talking about here. So all of chapter 6 is going to work together to help us look at this. So let's ask the first question and then read the first section. The first question today is, why are you seeking God? Why are you seeking God? So flip with me over there if you're not already. John chapter 6, we're going to read this first section, verse 22 down to verse 36. It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him, Him whom He sent. So they said to Him, And what sign do you do, so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So as you ponder that question for yourself, why are you seeking God, we can see why the crowd is following Jesus, can't we? If you remember from last week in in John chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus said that they were following him because of the signs that he was doing. He was healing the sick, doing all kinds of crazy things, and that's why they were following him to where he was on the mountainside where he fed them. Now read Jesus' assessment. (laughs) In verse 26, now why are they following him? You're not seeking me because you saw signs, because, but because of what? Because you filled your belly. <laughs> right, Joe. Because you ate my bread that I multiplied to you. Now that's why you're following me. So here's, here's the deal. People follow Jesus. They observe him for a variety of reasons, don't they? Yeah, oftentimes those reasons change and shift. The more they know and discover about Jesus, the reasons they follow him change. My wife shared with me earlier this week, she's taking an evangelism class in seminary, and this this book by Early and Wheeler, they note in their book on evangelism that people often move through a four-step process when they're seeking Jesus. First, they're curious. Curious about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he can do for them. They become convicted at some point by the Holy Spirit of their sin that is going to result in judgment, rightful judgment. They become become convinced that Jesus is the sinless Son of God and that salvation only comes through Him and converted through active faith that leads them to turn from their sin, which is repentance, and believing Jesus for salvation. Now, do these steps overlap and intersect all over the place? Of course, we're not talking about a specific order. That's not the point. But it seems that many people in the crowd are following Jesus, were curious about who he was, or more specifically, what he could do for them. Perhaps that's how you started your journey, in being curious about Jesus. What can Jesus do for me? Can he fill my belly? (laughs) Can he perform this miraculous sign on a sick family member? Maybe John Piper reminds us that Jesus didn't come to be useful. He came to be precious. That's that's deep. That's that's powerful. It's not about having our physical needs met. Does, does the Lord care about our physical needs? Yes, of course. The scriptures tell us that. But our spiritual needs are of much more concern to him and acknowledging the Lord for who he truly is. So why should we seek Jesus? We know why these folks were. I think he makes it plain in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Who's the Son of Man? It's Christ. And whose seal does he have? God, the Father, has set a seal on Jesus, set him apart. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's setting himself apart from the rest of humanity, calling himself the Son of God. The Son of Man, sealed by the Father. And eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. And he gives it freely. Salvation is why we seek Jesus. To be reconciled back to God through the work of Jesus. In fact, when the crowd asks, Okay, I'll I'll bite Jesus. What do we got to do then? What must be done to access this food that brings eternal life? And Jesus replies pretty simply, you want to know what the work is? This is the work of God. Believe in him who he sent. He's talking about himself, right? Of course, Jesus. Believe in me. This is the work. In a few chapters, in John chapter 10, he's going to refer to himself as the good shepherd. And he tells his disciples, I came that you have may have life and have it abundantly. New life is found in jesus right that's a great reason to be seeking after jesus is to find that new life that hope salvation forgiveness reconciliation to our father but words are not enough for this group of people and what do they do they ask for another sign (laughs) they want some sort of experience like their fathers before them in the in the manna you know coming down from heaven Hey, God, you gave our ancestors bread from heaven. You fed them in the desert while they're wandering for 40 years. What are you going to give us, Jesus? How about a sign for us? So he responds again with a very simple answer. First of all, he says, it wasn't Moses. Moses didn't give you that bread. That was my father. But more importantly, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, I think that's pretty clear in these verses, but Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear. He continues with this narrative, and look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, what they don't realize is that the manna was actually representative of Jesus thousands of years before his coming. It was a picture of what was to come. And as I mentioned in the opening of my message, this is a very significant moment in John. It's here where there should be no confusion whatsoever about who Jesus is claiming to be. I am that the words coming out of his mouth would have set the record straight that Jesus is in fact God incarnate. The word made flesh and dwelling among his people. Where did we read that? The word made flesh and dwelt among his people. Where do we read that? John chapter one. We already, I know it's been a couple of months, but we already read that and now we're seeing it come to fruition. And yet we see in verse 36, they did not believe. Even after seeing and hearing this truth. And unfortunately, church, that's the case with a lot of people. They hear the truth about Jesus and they do not take him at his word. But let's let's talk a little bit about The role of God in this process of salvation and the the role of man. And that's the next question we're going to ask. It's really just kind of a a statement. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Let's look at this next section. Read with me verse 37 to verse 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and that will raise him up on the last day. So in verse 37, there's this uh, tension that exists, and, and it sits at the crux of a very challenging spiritual truth, and that spiritual truth is this. The Father has given certain people to Jesus for the purpose of salvation. We just read that. And in the same verse, we see that these people must also come to Jesus. So which is it? Does God call people to himself or do people need to respond to the gospel and come to Jesus? Yes. yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> the tension then continues all the way through the end of this section. He repeats himself. Jesus does in verse 39 when he states, The will of the Father is for Jesus to lose nothing that the Father has given him. But also, the will of the Father in verse 40 is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So it seems to be both and. Now, is this passage mainly about this topic? No. But I think if you're reading this very carefully, that might have stood out to you. You're like, well, wait a minute. Which which is it? It's something that we need to spend a little bit of time considering. And this is why it's difficult to grasp, church. Because it's an infinite truth trying to be discovered by finite minds. And anyone that says that they've got it understood is foolish. Amen. Because you're trying to understand the things of God. But we should know, at the very least, that the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's some sort of cooperation, there, coordination, however you want to look at it, however your, your your theology wraps that up for you. you got to know that the Bible teaches both of these things going forward. Amen? Okay. Let's keep going. The next section is essentially Jesus building his case for himself as the bread of life. Look at verse 41 through 51. So the Jews, the Jews grumbled about him. Nice response. But because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay. So we see this response of the Jews who were there listening to Jesus, what was their response in verse 41? They grumbled. Let me paraphrase their response. Isn't this Jesus? Like, we know his mother, we know his father, he grew up down the street, and now he wants to tell us that he's been sent from heaven? Are you serious? They're grumbling about this. Again, they missed who Jesus was, and instead of trying to understand what Jesus was saying, They complained. So the next question that we need to ask ourselves, is there any way that you have been grumbling about God? Well, it's easy to hold these people to a harsh standard, right? Because they were literally right there with Jesus and missed who he was. But we are no different, church. We miss God all the times in our lives, don't we? Many times because we're grumbling about something else. When our eyes become fixed fixed, On temporary things, grumbling often follows. Remember what this chapter is mainly about. God desires for us to acknowledge him as our all in all, our fount of every blessing, our hope, our anchor, our joy, our peace, our source of salvation. It's very difficult to do that when our focus is on the bread rather than on the source of the bread. Remember, Jesus came to be bread, not just to give us bread. So how has the world been pulling at you so as to cause you to grumble about something in your own life? That's a question you should ask yourself this week. Verses 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and then he repeats himself, I am the bread of life. This is the third time Jesus is saying the same thing. He is desperately seeking to express why he had come in the first place. Eternal life is available through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now the next question is more of a statement than it is a question, and it's simply this. Uh, eat what now? It's supposed to like be a lilty l- l- kind of eat what now kind of thing. If you read Ephesians 52 to 59, you may understand what I'm trying to get at. Verse 52. he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things to the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Which begs the question that I ask. Eat what now? How many of you have read that part and just were like, what is happening? Or maybe you have been exposed to this for the first time. You're like, did I miss something? Like, is Christianity teaching me something that I didn't know about? Does Jesus really mean for us to take him literally in this section? Is this language literal? I mean, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, has eternal life. So if it's not meant to be taken literally, then what exactly is he getting at? Well, here's what it's not. It's not cannibalism, okay? Just set that aside. The Bible's not teaching cannibalism. Okay, we're good on that. It's also not some discourse on the Lord's Supper. That's not what this is either. Although there's obviously some parallels there. That's not what mainly this is teaching. The weight of what Jesus is saying here must be felt to the very core of us. The language he chooses should shake us up. The bottom line, what Jesus is saying here is that in order to experience the benefits of who Jesus is, you must consume the full truth of who he is. Do, do something for me, just briefly. Take away the, the eating flesh and drinking blood language. Just take it away for a minute. And let's see what the implications are of doing this or not doing this. So if we don't do this, if we don't receive Jesus as our Savior, verse 53 tells us, you have no life in you. That's, that's pretty clear. But if you do receive Jesus, you will... Have eternal life and be raised up on the last day, verse 54. You will abide in Jesus and have Jesus abide in you, verse 56. You will live because of him, verse 57. You will live forever, verse 58. Eternal life depends on your acceptance, your belief of who Jesus is. That's why we're calling this series One Word, starting with the B, which is what? Believe. Believe. That's the whole point. That's why John, at the very end of the book in chapter 20, makes his key statement. This is John 20, 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. But you've got to take it all in. You've got to consume all of the truth that he is telling them right now. You can't just expect the little bread from manna to kind of sustain you temporarily. This eating the flesh and drinking the blood is, is just language that tells us you gotta, you got to consume this truth to the very core of who you are. And believe, repent, turn from your sins and trust in him for eternal life. That's the point. So the final question we're going to ask this morning is is just what happens when it gets too hard? If you are following Jesus in any capacity, what, what happens when it gets too hard? Look with me in verse 60 to the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter asked him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So the final section of chapter six it can be a little bit tough to read. It says that when many of Jesus' disciples heard what he was saying, they said, this is, this is just too tough. It's too hard. Who can listen to this? In others, how does he expect us to believe what he is saying and to do what he's asking of us? They were offended. And Jesus, being Jesus, challenges them one last time in verse 61. Hey, do you, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is that going to help? <laughs> it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And their response, in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back turned back, and they were no longer walking with him. Now, you remember last week I gave you sort of a preview of the things to come because there was a lot of disciples following jesus at the beginning of chapter six there was a multitude remember five thousand plus were disciples following after him now the disciples are leaving and turning away from jesus which in my mind begs the question so then what is a disciple (laughs) we don't have a long time to discuss this so i'm going to offer this a disciple is anyone who demonstrates a willingness to follow Jesus and grow in their obedience of him. We see here and other places Jesus discipling people into a relationship with him. He's discipling them into a relationship with him. Not all continue as disciples, and repent and believe. We see that right here. They they, they were confronted with the truth, and were are saying, nope, I, I can't do that. And off they went. What does this help us to do? At least in my mind, it helps us to remove the dividing line between evangelism and discipleship. Because they're two sides of the same coin. We introduce the idea of God through the word of God. We, we expose people to the truth of the gospel long before they repent and believe the moment we expose them to that they become disciples they're they're interested they have some level of curiosity they're following jesus they're working through these four steps that we've discussed earlier so it's not just about going down to the pier with a big sign that says jesus loves you and trying to convert people all right maybe there's a place for that maybe there's a time for that But you in your circles, in every relationship that you have, that you begin to bring in the truth of the word of God, and they sit and they're at least a little bit willing to acknowledge that person is a disciple because they're following after what you are exposing them to. It it removes the pressure of us having to have some huge gospel presentation and polish and have all of the answers, which none of us do, myself included. It takes all of that away and just shows us we just got to do life with people. And yes, share some stories about who Jesus is and what he's done. And allow the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and his word to transform. And eventually, they become convicted, they repent, and they believe, and they continue on their discipleship journey. But it's not up to us to hold their hand and yank them and pull them and, and force them. Did Jesus run down and chase them, the the ones that left and turned away and didn't follow him anymore? No. He didn't do that. Again, not not the main point of the passage, but clearly an application for us. So let me wrap up here. What is your response when things get hard when we're following Jesus? The reality is, church, there's going to be a lot of times in this life that the only thing that you know to be true is that you know so little. But when you know who God is, you know what His Word says, the circumstances, the difficulties, pressures, pain, suffering, they're manageable. What we see around us does not determine our willingness to follow Jesus. What other people say about what we believe does not determine our willingness to follow Jesus. Even what our own heart tells us sometimes about what we think Jesus is, should not determine our willingness to follow Jesus. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. That's who Jesus is. The way, the truth, and the the life. The one who died in our place and made a way of reconciliation back to the father. In him, church, is eternal life. So let us respond like the twelve did. Jesus asked, do you want to go away too? (laughs) Do you want to walk away? Just just throw in the towel? Lord, where are we going to go? Who who are we going to follow? You, have the words of eternal life we're following you would we have the same response in those moments where it gets difficult would we be willing to lead others into that relationship as well church i just pray that you would look to this passage this morning and 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 as we say each week be compelled to act to move to consider What am I going to know, stop, do, or change as a result of this? What is my I will statement? As a result of these verses, I will do this this week. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. (laughs) You are faithful, merciful, amazing, perfectly righteous. The way, the truth, and the life. You are the bread of life. And Lord, we don't want the manna that comes down and is temporarily satisfied. We want the true bread. We want you who gives eternal life. I pray that we begin to seek you for the right reasons. Lord, you bless. You bless abundantly. And you meet physical needs every day. But that's not why we follow you. Let our hearts be drawn to you, broken before you for those that are around us that are wandering in this world, lost, looking to everything to be satisfied. You alone satisfy. You alone are the substance that gives us what we need to be fulfilled, content, completely satisfied, satisfied, in you. moving our hearts this morning and this week, Lord, as we desire to walk in obedience to your word, as we we stop grumbling and look to the incredible blessings that we have around us, as we look for ways in which we are seeking you that may not line up with your word, Lord, as we count the cost of following you. Lead us. Help us. Equip us and thank you, Lord, that you call us to do this in community. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.